This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. Former President Trump, clearly the front runner in the presidential race. But can his Republican challengers gain some ground tonight at the Reagan Library? We go in-depth into tonight's GOP presidential debate. Hollywood might be facing a big production glut soon. Hmm, interesting. And also, we are going there. Yes, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelty. We're going to talk about it. Can they make it? And also the broader issue, can public relationships work? I don't know. But you know what, Rob? We're going to call them trailer for now. What? No, I refuse <laughs> to go along with that. I'm not doing that. No, no, no. All right. OK, well, while you think about it, you sure? Um, we're going <laughs> to start with the Republican presidential debate tonight at the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley. Sean Walsh is a Republican strategist and former White House staffer. Sean, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So tonight, I know all of these candidates know how far they are behind in the polls, if you put a lot of stock in the polls right now, behind former President Trump. So what would be their strategy for tonight, knowing they are so far behind? And do you imagine them taking some really major shots at Trump while they're on the national stage tonight? Well, I think they have to take shots at Trump. And it's an interesting contrast. As you noted, I worked in the Reagan White House and the George H.W. Bush White House. And President Reagan, if he has one enduring legacy, it's the shining city on a hill speech where he was an upbeat president. He was upbeat about America, can always do great things and overcome you know, difficulties. And President Trump is quite the contrast. As a president and as a candidate, he's generally pretty negative. He attacks um, says things are miserable and only he can save the day. So I just think it's quite a contrast, number one. And number two, these candidates really, really need to carve him up. They didn't really touch him much in the last debate, although Chris Christie tried, the audience shouted him down. I think the Reagan Library will have control of that audience. And if these candidates are going to make some headway, they've got to really put the work, the wood to Mr. Trump tonight. Do you think we'll see some of the Mike Pence approach? And by that, I mean saying things like, uh, I don't think Donald Trump is qualified to be president and he's got issues. And if he's the nominee, the party's going to lose. And then turn around in another interview a few minutes later and and say, well, if he's the nominee, I will definitely support him because great guy. Uh, Do you think we'll see some of that? Well, what I'm hoping we'll see is some of these people fall off the radar of the edge of the world tonight. So, uh, you know, already uh, Asa Hutchinson, the former governor from Arkansas, didn't make the cut. I think that North Dakota Governor Doug uh, Burgum shouldn't be on that stage either. They have no, um, you know, saliency. If we can get down to Tim Scott and Nikki Haley uh, and then keep Chris Christie in there to carve up Donald Trump, he's a former prosecutor. If anybody can do it, it's him. Uh, then we've got something going. It's incredible, though, the incredible shrinking man in Governor DeSantis. Um, He was ahead in the polls. He was doing great in the fundraising. And then he just did all woke social stuff and didn't do the economy. And now he's getting ready to debate uh, Governor Newsom. So he's kind of turned into the incredible shrinking man. So I think someone's got to stand up. And I think the best person and the strongest person to break out of the pack is Nikki Haley. I thought she did the best in last debate. I think she's got the opportunity to shine tonight. Uh, She needs to show some warmth and some humor that she didn't show in the last. But if anybody can step up, it's Haley. Tim Scott is a crowd favorite and people love him. They love his story, but he's shown no ability to go beyond that. So I think the two folks to look at tonight are Haley and Scott and particularly Haley. 
Yeah, if you look at the polls and 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 you believe them right now, she is pulling ahead of DeSantis, who was uh, first in line behind Trump, of course. So, but still, there's a huge gap. Trump is polling at like 50 percent. She, I believe right now, is at about 13 percent. That's a major gap to close. So if that's not closed, you know, Trump did give his blessing at the time when she publicly stated that she was going to be making a run for the White House. What could she be looking at if she doesn't become a clear and uh, viable rival to Trump? Is she going to tread lightly tonight, hoping that maybe she might be picked uh, as a vice presidential candidate or maybe uh, jockey for a uh, cabinet position? Well, I think a lot of them tread a little bit lightly last time out, hoping that they potentially could be VP candidates. But you're you're not going to get the number one seat unless you campaign for the number one seat. I think uh, Ramaswamy was actually campaigning full bore for the vice presidency in that last um, debate. And um, I think that um, um, Tim Scott uh, potentially could be a VP no matter what he does. I think Haley can't have that strategy. Her strategy has got to be running as uh, the number one spot, number one. Number two, what else can they do? What they can do is let nature take its course. President Trump has a lot of issues coming up in the courts, and who knows what can happen in that process. Although on the other side, unfortunately, Mr. Biden, I think, has got a lot of jeopardy potentially from a legal perspective if Congress continues his investigation of his activities as vice president and the money that went to his family. So, I mean, this is really a, you know, Forrest Gump box of chocolates. You're not going to know what you're going to get in this election. I think it's going to be very wild. And I think anything can happen now with President Biden's health and mental acuity and Donald Trump's legal meandering. So, you know, one of these folks hope that one of these two people step on a landmine. And I think it's imminently possible that that could happen going forward into this election season. All right. Sean Walsh, thank you so much. A Republican strategist, former White House staffer. Hollywood writers, they're getting back to work now that the strike is over. Actors still need to reach a deal and the studios need to plan for potential production and scheduling crunches now. Michael Schneider is Variety's TV editor. And Michael, so this is great. Uh, you know, writers getting back. People are starting to perk up. You know, deal was reached and all that kind of stuff. But now we might be facing too much of a good thing. Uh, explain what is happening with this crunch and and uh, production. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say too much of a good thing. I think right now everyone's just excited <laughs> to get back to work. And and so we'll see just what kind of crunch uh, comes. But, you know, again, that's a high class problem to have. But, yeah, as everyone goes back to work at the same time, there is a finite amount of talent out there if you want to get the best uh, you know, directors, if you want to get the best crew members, uh, everyone's going to be scrambling to get those people at the same time. Studio space will be at a premium as everyone tr- tries to find the, the best studio space for their shows. Uh, so again, it's it's everyone sort of all starting back at once, and that's going to create a little bit of chaos. But again, good, good problems. You know, Michael, uh, all I want to say is this. I just want my third season of Apple TV's Foundation, right? That's all I want. That's all I'm asking for. So is there some way we can move that to the top of the line? What you're talking about, it sounds like, is not so much uh, it's a scheduling issue, not so much a glut of productions. It's the same number of productions. You're just all trying to, to do everything right now, right? Yeah, yeah. And in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of shows uh, have uh, the same talent. So not, uh, you know, for, for example, 
uh, you know, you've got certain stars who are on two shows at the same time. Well, they both can't start production then at the same time. Uh, so you'll have to figure out, okay, scheduling wise, how is that going to work? And how does that impact other people on those shows who may have other shows that they're involved with as well? So it is going to be a, a little bit of a traffic cop situation now as everyone figures out, okay, uh, who can do what at what time? Uh, Harrison Ford, he's on two shows at the same time, 1923, but then also shrinking. So which show is in first position? And then what happens to the other stars on those shows? What happens to the directors and, and everything else? So there's a lot of moving pieces now that everyone's going to have to figure out in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and I would think right now, after such a long strike and people really just financially, a lot of people in the WGA just really trying to hold on financially, one of the first things that might come to mind is job security. So you might have some of the best people running to productions that can guarantee maybe a, a 20 week shoot versus something that has four weeks left to shoot. Is that something that is going to be a, a realistic problem? I mean, I think everything's going to be an issue going forward. You know, some shows uh, already have scripts in the can. So, you know, we're obviously waiting to see what happens with SAG-AFTRA, which, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, we got to remind folks that SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP have not yet started negotiating. Uh, so that uh, hopefully will come in the coming days or weeks. Uh, but until we get a resolution uh, with the SAG-AFTRA strike, then productions uh, aren't necessarily going to be back up and running. Now, writers might get back to work and start writing those scripts so that they will be ready uh, when uh, actors are ready to go back to work. But there, there is sort of the timing of that that we sort of have to wait and see as well. Uh, very quickly, since you bring up SAG-AFTRA and the actors are still out on strike, uh, do you think this will be, once they get back to the table, kind of like what happened with the writers, stand off for a long time, but then all of a sudden, right at the end there, they, they did the sprint, and it seemed like both sides were willing to, to, to make a deal. Do you think that'll happen with the actors here shortly? I think there's a lot of motivation now to to get a deal done, and there's also now a bit of a template in place uh, with with the WGA deal. Obviously, they're not the same guilds, and there are different issues that the actors want addressed uh, that uh, you know are different from the WGA. So so they'll still need to hammer out some of those points, but. The motivation seems to be there. The momentum seems to be there. So it does feel like this town is itching uh, to, to get back to work. And we'll see what that means in the coming days. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Michael Schneider, Variety's TV editor. Talk about uh, not so much a glut of production, but a, a problem with scheduling. Later in the show, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What did you call him? Trailer? Trailer. No, no, I, I, can't, I can't take credit. For, I can't no. take credit for that. The Internet already came mm. up with that. But yes, trailer. Can they make it? Can any relationship this public possibly last, no matter who the people are? I mean, I feel sorry for them. Right now, though, uh, we're just days away from a possible federal government shutdown. Hold on. You just said you were sorry for Taylor Swift. I feel, feel sorry. Bad for I, feel, Swift? I feel bad for them trying I, to have a normal, trying to date like normal people, and would, they have like every single person in the whole world watching them. I would love to have either one of their problems. First honestly. world problems. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's getting back to this other uh, big news: federal government shutdown. House Republicans don't seem to be on the same page with each other right now. Eric Wasson is Bloomberg congressional reporter. He's on Capitol Hill right now. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. How is it there on Capitol Hill, surrounded by all the chaos, and, and why is there so much chaos? Well, you know, I think it's really coming down to uh, infighting among Republicans. Uh, you know, normally in these situations, Republicans would come up with some kind of conservative offer, some kind of bill they would put forward, and then there might be some negotiating. 
they can't even really get to that first step. You know, we haven't seen a stopgap bill to extend funding beyond this October 1st deadline that Republicans can agree on uh, in the House. And meanwhile, Senate Republicans are going along with Democrats to basically put forward a pretty clean bill that would last for 47 days while, su- while supplying aid to Ukraine. And um, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, is refusing to put that on the floor. So basically, I think it really comes down to uh, a lot of disarray among the Republicans, and uh, that's what's precipitating the shutdown crisis. You know, we've talked about the shutdown, and as we get closer and closer to it, you know, it's it's kind of the boogeyman right now that if this happens, you know, a lot of things aren't going to go right. We already know we've been told and talked about the fact that it's going to possibly really affect travel with TSA agents who may have to come into work but not get paid. Uh, federal employees not getting paid. We know there might be problems with passports and getting those in a timely manner and all those kind of things. But a lot that hasn't been talked about is the funding for low-income families and families who rely on some of the assistance um, that they get from the government, uh, will they be impacted the most if the government does shut down? That is a big part of it. The Women, Infants, and Children program is is affected by this shutdown. That is the nutrition program for for mothers and their children, and there's a real worry that there will be a cliff there. The Senate bill would extend funding for that program. Uh, However, uh, you know, the House has not really figured out how to address it. Social Security checks, Medicare payments, they uh, continue on a separate track. They're not something that's approved every year by Congress, kind of running on autopilot. Another thing to to look at is workers for federal contractors. We have a a study out on Bloomberg uh, today, uh, $1.9 billion in daily revenue payments to these federal contractors uh, are going to be delayed uh, or, or lost. And then, you know, you're talking about people like, you know, uh, federal contractors like cafeteria workers, you know, lawn maintenance, others. And they, when they, uh, you know, get sent home during government shutdown, they never get back pay. You know, the federal workers themselves get back pay. They blame may miss a paycheck. Uh, you know, there's 2 million federal workers, 1.3 members of the military. And they're going to have to figure out how to juggle their finances during the shutdown. But these, these contract workers uh, will never be made uh, whole. There are some Senate Republicans uh, who are very upset about this, and they are blaming a specific number of individuals among House Republicans for it, because their concern is, as they've expressed, that if there's a government shutdown, and if it drags on for any amount of time, Republicans will generally get blamed for it because of the House, and because of that, they're in danger of losing the House and uh, certainly uh, won't uh, uh, take back control of the Senate. Are those fears justified? I think so. And you see that really a moderate uh, House Republican, especially in these Biden districts, especially in New York State, where we have a number of them who did uh, help flip the House. They're scrambling. They're saying we did not want to shut down. They're willing to work with Democrats to use this arcane uh, 1910 House rule to go around the speaker. It takes some time, could take nine days, maybe even longer. But they could get, put this process in place called the discharge petition and thwart the speaker and force a vote on that Senate bill. They're taking that very seriously because they know the constituents in their, uh, you know, moderate and especially northeast uh, swing districts are not very interested in the shutdown. So how soon will we start seeing the effects of a government shutdown if this does happen, which it looks like it's likely to happen? Uh, When when are we going to start seeing the effects at airports and, and all the other things we talked about? Well, you know, it's going to start on midnight Saturday between Saturday and Sunday. You know, a couple hours after that, the Office of Management Budget, Budget sends out a shutdown order and, and people are, are sent home. You know, a lot of uh, people are furloughed and they're not even allowed to touch their work email. And those are people, as you mentioned, that are processing passports or processing permits, 
you know, that's the stuff we're going to see initially. Uh, but the issue with travel, you know, one of the things that ended the, the Trump shutdown, as listeners are, are going to recall, in 2019, we had a 35-day longest ever shutdown over a border wall. Uh, one of the things that many lawmakers finally come to a deal was FAA air traffic controllers said, you know, we've been working for a month without pay. We're going to start walking off the job. And I think when you start to see people like that, when you start to see TSA and, and FAA members saying, you know what, I'm not going to keep working without being paid. Uh, you know, that's when I think, you know, you're going to see massive disruptions. You're going to see Congress come to a deal. All right. Eric Wasson, thank you so much. Uh, Bloomberg's congressional reporter. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon and for Charles Feldman. The economic experts and the numbers say, and they show, that the U.S. economy is doing well, but regular people don't feel that way. And maybe two new surveys might help explain why. Lending Club finds 60 percent of adults are living paycheck to paycheck right now, which is the same as last year. We're not seeing any movement a YouGov bank rate poll finds more than half of people don't have enough saved for retirement. At least they don't feel that way. With us is Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia.com. Caleb, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Okay, so percentage-wise, what would you say people need to have uh, for a semi-comfortable retirement, at least? Not extravagant, um, but at least able to retire. It's a great question, and that has to do with a couple of things. How much does it cost to be you or the you you want to be in retirement, and how long do you expect to be living in retirement? Now, we don't know the answer to number two, but we can figure out the answer to number one. So let's say you're a married couple, for example. Not everyone who retires is, but let's say you're a married couple, and you want to be able to live comfortably, eat the meals you want to eat, and visit your grandchildren once or twice a year. We're talking just given rent and average rent and home costs around the country these days and travel costs, you're looking at about a hundred thousand dollars that's what a lot of people think that magic number is if your retirement is going to take 20 years 30 years then multiply that by that number and that's kind of how you come up with these big numbers like 1.8 million or 2.5 million but it depends again on the how much you think it's going to cost to be the you you want to be what is retirement and the loss of a regular income mean to you and how are you going to spend down that money Let's uh, let's take a look at how people feel about the economy, because by a lot of metrics, uh, while the economy has some problems, uh, it is doing pr- uh, pretty well, especially considering the uh, the headwinds that are against some sectors of it. Right. So we've got that. On the other hand, we're dealing with things like here, especially here in California, gas prices have jumped. So that makes us feel bad about the economy, like the economy is not good. It really sucks, even though it really doesn't. Why is it this disconnect? Is it really because people are getting hit in the pocketbook where they're vulnerable Or is it part of because they're listening to a political narrative that, you know, you want to convince people things are bad so that you vote for the other guy? Yeah, there's a lot of that going on, obviously. But gas prices have a lot to do with it, especially in California. I happen to be in Arizona at the moment. Not a lot cheaper here. So it's the first thing you see. As a consumer, gas prices and food prices, you can't avoid those or shelter. Those three components are still up meaningfully year over year. So we're talking about inflation coming down from 9% last year. But if you look at shelter, if you look at food, especially food away from home and gas and energy prices, those are meaningfully higher and you can't avoid those. So that's one of the reasons inflation has a lot to do with it. But also the notion that we're in this inflation era 
for a long time with high interest rates for a long time. So the cost of borrowing money is very high as well. So borrowing money to buy a car, buy a home, or even just finance stuff on your credit card, that's extremely expensive. Plus, every time we go shopping, we're reminded how expensive it is to feed our families, pay the rent, and fill our cars with gas. So you have that feeling, but you also have this feeling of, I'm just not going to be able to do as well as I thought I would or as well as my parents' generation did. And you see that feeling spreading across America. It's what we call the real feel of the economy. So yes, the economy is doing well. If you look at unemployment, if you look at manufacturing and consumer spending, all those factors are good. But the real feel on the ground for many people, especially low to middle income, is not good at all. Sure. All of that aside, though, when you look at 60% of adults who are living paycheck to paycheck, how much of that is really inflation and, uh, you know, interest rates and how much of that is really where they work and how much they're paid not keeping up with inflation and not being paid what they're worth? Yeah, it's all of those things. Right. But again, everybody says they live paycheck to paycheck, even the very wealthy. It depends what you do with your paycheck. Right. So if your paycheck and a lot of it, let's say you rent and you've had rent inflation, all of a sudden you went from 25 percent of your earnings going to your to paying for rent to 40 percent. That's meaningful. And that means you're going to be just barely getting by. If food costs were 300 a week, you know, a couple of years ago, but now they're 350. That's meaningful. So it depends what you do with your paycheck. And while wages have grown about 4, 4.1% year over year, inflation has kind of been in this average zone of about 5 to 6%. So you're not keeping up with the cost of money and you haven't necessarily seen an increase in your assets given what the stock market did last year. We've had a comeback, of course, but you don't have that wealth effect. When the stock market's booming and we're at all-time highs, people feel wealthier. We're not there right now. Very quickly, uh, as we're running out of time here, uh, I think we're seeing with uh, the United Auto Workers especially, uh, they are looking at corporate profits being really, really historically high. CEOs getting these massive, massive bonuses and the workers saying, you know, we sacrificed, we gave concessions, we want to claw some of that money back. Does that factor into this feeling that people have about the economy? And this is why the labor uh, movement has seen a really hot summer this year. Absolutely. And people feel like they're not getting their proper piece of the payments. I don't care if you're an auto worker, if you're a Hollywood writer or an actor, whatever industry you're in, if you're looking at the CEO making millions of dollars a year and you're increasing your salary, if you're lucky two to 3%, you're going to feel like you have not been cut in to the profits and you want your end of it. And that's why we're seeing the labor movement rise up this summer. But I think this is going to be the new normal going forward. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia.com. All right, so we've gone through Benefer, Brangelina, Kim Ye, remember Tomcat, Tom Cruise, and Katie Holmes. Now we have Trailer, that's short for Travis and Taylor Swift. It's a new relationship. Everybody's talking about it. I mean, people are even resorting to trying to read Taylor Swift's lips when she was in the uh, the box with uh, his Kelsey's mom. Uh, Travis opened up about this with his brother on their new Heights podcast. We got to talk about it. Yeah, my personal life, that's not so personal. <laughs> I did this to myself, Jason. I know this. Uh, with this to explain whether relationships can withstand this kind of uh, heavy public scrutiny is Susan Trombetti, a celebrity matchmaker, relationship expert, and CEO of ExclusiveMatchmaking.net. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So when you got people as famous as Taylor Swift and someone who's kind of up and coming in the sports world like Travis Kelsey, uh, 
that's a very public relationship. It's not just the two people, then. It's also the millions of fans. So can a relationship stand up to that kind of weight? Uh, well, yes, it can, but it is a new relationship, and I don't think he's as used to the limelight, so it's going to be definitely uh, a very tricky situation. And, um, you know, what can you do? I mean, he's going to learn quick. <laughs> he's going to be thrown <laughs> into the water to the deep end. I mean, yes. I, look, he's no slouch. He's a two-time Super Bowl champ. He was already on the map. But when someone like him hears things like this, oh, Taylor put you on the map. Oh, your jersey uh, and sales of them soared roughly 400% after Taylor Swift came to the game and was sitting with your mom and people were trying to read her lips from the camera shots of what she's saying about you. I would think that might put a little bit of a strain on, you know, the uh, power struggle that sometimes comes up in relationships because I have personally been through it where I dated someone once and I my salary was significantly higher than his and he had such a problem with it that it didn't survive. It was just unsustainable. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I don't think either of them are hurting for money, but there could be a power struggle at some point. The more these kind of, um, you know, messages surface in the media. Right. So, I mean, it is definitely emasculating and he, you know, we don't know him well enough to know um, how he's really going to cope with that. Right. But some men do relate, um, just as you said, like with a former relationship. And I think he'll take it in stride. I mean, he is, let's face it, the game of um, football and the Super Bowl that's, um, you know, really pressured. Uh, every week and definitely nothing you know I mean the Super Bowl was so much pressure so he's used to pressure but you know suddenly like uh, being so uh, you know a monetary value being assigned to him in such an increase like that when his I didn't hear about his jerseys but that's kind of like embarrassing because it's obviously due to her dating him so I mean hopefully he's going to have a sense of humor about it um but if not, I mean, it's definitely going to add some pressure to their dynamic. And, you know, he just didn't know what he was in for. That's It's like dating a reality celeb and then suddenly an A-lister. So um, he's going to have to catch up. Really yeah, there there is a different dynamic here because in this case you've got someone who's a, a superstar, probably one of the biggest uh, superstars that we've seen in uh, quite some time. And then you've got uh, not saying that uh, Travis Kelsey is not a star. I mean, he is, but I mean Taylor Swift is in on another level. Would it be easier for a relationship with a very famous person if that very famous person was dating someone that no one knew who was not famous at all maybe a, an important business person that uh, you know they they have some cash of their own but they are not famous is a relationship like that easier I mean, look at um, George Clooney and his wife, Amal. I mean, she wasn't particularly famous, but she obviously um, was this incredible person in her own right. And uh, I mean, they've stood the test of time. So sometimes I think that that does help. But I mean, listen, at the end of the day, he's definitely media savvy. And that is something like that Amal Clooney didn't have, for example. And so he might very well be able to weather this. And I think it's funny. I mean, like if you listen, like Bill Belichick, I mean, he said like, oh, if he manages to land her or something like that, he said, uh, it'll be the biggest um, catch of his life. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> right. <his> <laughs> yeah, so, well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like everybody's taking it in stride, but 
I mean, that level of scrutiny is something that he certainly hasn't experienced. But But, I mean, look, you have, you have like what, um, you have that on the Royal family. And so you have some people that do well with the media and some people that don't. So like, I mean, look at Kate, she wasn't exposed to that, but she seems to do well with it. And then maybe Princess Diana did. So if you like want to kind of compare Taylor Swift to royalty, I mean, she's air royalty for sure. And, um, yeah, I think they'll be fine. I I know that anytime you have a relationship in the public eye, it comes with, you know, certain problems, such as, you know, he's here with a competing um, career, you know, taking him away and her at the same time she's away, like if she's on tour. But, you know, they'll try to work it out for certain. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Susan from Betty, a celebrity matchmaker and uh, CEO of uh, ExclusiveMatchmaking.net. You know what would be interesting if they switched places? <laughs> yeah. If uh, Taylor Swift uh, played football and uh, Travis Kelsey did uh, a worldwide uh, music tour. Well, I don't know that that would work out, but you know she's going to face pressure, too, because what if he has a bad game? Oh, it's Taylor Swift's it's fault. It's Taylor's oh, fault, yeah. You know, you know, so, yeah. you know, she's going to face some pressure, too, on her The end. Yoko Ono effect. Uh, and, <laughs> I hope and, and kids, look that up on Google. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's it for KNX In-Depth. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m.